Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Amen. Well, you may be seated this morning. Grab your Bible if you would. Turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking there at Acts chapter 1 and uh, work our way periodically through various aspects of what the book of Acts describes for us. As you're turning the book of Acts, let me tell you about a place that I visited one time. It's the uh, Winchester family home in uh, San Jose, California. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it's one of those most fascinating places uh, in uh, modern American history to kind of visit and learn from and look at. And uh, the home was uh, built by the wealthy widow uh, named Sarah Winchester of the man that really was responsible for the explosive growth and use of the rifle that won the West, as it was known and called. Well, so many people had been shot and killed by that rifle that uh, Sarah felt so guilt, uh, guilty about it that she uh, sought out a spiritualist, uh, kind of someone that uh, you know, enters into the dark magic and tries to discover uh, what to do or what to expect. And of course, the Bible tells us not to do that, but she did it because of the desperate guilt that she felt. And uh, what the spiritist and medium told her was to build a house and never stop. And so she began to build this house, and uh, in the end, it had 160 rooms, three elevators, 40 staircases, and 47 fireplaces. And it was weirdly designed, and if you go there today, you'll see windows in the floor, staircase into the ceiling that leads absolutely nowhere and just all sorts of peculiarities in this very unusual uh, house. The reason I tell you that story and the, the reason why it's important for the church, especially as we open up the book of Acts, is there are a lot of churches that go about building their ministry in just the same way. A lot of people have thoughts, a lot of people have feelings, a lot of people have experiences and, and they never put together the total ministry. They never think about the focus of the ministry. They never consider the direction of the ministry. They never think about the mission of the ministry. They never think about the outcomes of the ministry. But instead, they just build every sort of thing without giving consideration to the instruction and the mandate and the direction that Jesus has given to his church. And in the end, it becomes a very disjointed church, a very confused church, a very uncertain church, a, a church that feels like it's moving in multiple different directions without any real core or center or focus to its ministry. And yet the Bible is incredibly clear that Jesus gives just such focus to the ministry of the church. Now think with me about where we've been. Uh, we, we spent four weeks looking at the, ourselves in the mirror kind of understanding that the Bible says we are to look like Christ. Jesus died that we could look like Christ. He day by day is working through the Holy Spirit that we look like Christ. He is ultimately forming and fashioning us into a heavenly being that's going to be like Jesus. And, and then we took the fruits of the Spirit and said, okay, here's maybe the most concise, maybe the simplest, and yet the fullest picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and we looked at our spiritual life with the Father and relationship with Him. We looked at our relationships with one another, and then we considered our own spiritual vitality within ourselves as we relate to ourselves and live our life in Christ. Now, today what I want to do is step back and talk not about us as individuals, but us. Us as a body, us as a 
family and what we're really all about because the Bible's incredibly clear about what we're all about, but the Bible's incredibly clear at a time when the American church is very confused. You don't have to read many articles or many newspapers to understand that the church's ministry is needed desperately right now, but right now the church seems to be struggling with understanding its own ministry. It's lost its voice when the world needs the voice of the church the most, and part of that comes from our lack of clarity and understanding about what the church is supposed to be. And the Bible addresses this. It addresses it, as a matter of fact, extensively. And if you'll pick up there with me in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Acts, you'll see how clear the apostles were and how clear Jesus had been in his instruction. I'm going to read part of this, and I'm going to give you some commentary along the way to just help us understand the biblical passage that we're looking at. Uh, Begin with me in verse 1. It'll be on the screen in front of you as well. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, uh, this is Luke writing. He's writing to someone who obviously is being very generous to help fund the ministry of the church, and he's giving some sense of an account and a report. And so the first book was the Gospel of Luke that told about Jesus' life and ministry and teaching all the way up to his death and his resurrection, his commissioning of the apostles. And then now he's starting to tell another story, the story of the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching and ministry of the apostles in that early church. And and so it says that the first book taught about what Jesus did and taught until, verse 2, he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And that's really what we're going to focus on, the instructions Jesus had given to the apostles. Now, why is that important? Well, because the Bible says that we are building upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the church doesn't get to invent its message. The, The church is always needing to refocus itself upon the essential message that Jesus has given to the church, and that is the gospel and the implications of the gospel being lived out in our life, which is what it means to be discipled as a follower of Jesus. Look at verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. In other words, he proved over and over again from teaching and visiting and touching and eating and drinking and traveling that with these disciples that he was really alive. And they were convinced of that, so convinced about, of that, that they went from being a scattered, discouraged group to being a focused intentional group willing to sacrifice and suffer if need be because the message that that Jesus was preaching that they were preaching was so true the Bible says that he appeared to them over the course of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God on one occasion while he was eating with them he gave them this command do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a real important question that they ask because what it's revealing to us is that the apostles, though they had been with Jesus for over three years, and the apostles, though they had seen the resurrected Jesus, And the apostles, though they had spent 40 days listening to his instructions about what they were supposed to do, were still confused about what they were supposed to do. And can I tell you something? There are a lot of people in the church today that are still confused about what the church 
is supposed to do. Now, there are many things the church can do, and there are many things the church does as additional byproducts to what it primarily does. But here's the problem. If the church doesn't have the first and most important thing that it's supposed to do right, then nothing else functions properly. They say, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel again? In other words, they weren't looking at what Jesus had said that he was coming to set up, which was a kingdom within, the transforming of the human heart, the change of a person's eternal destiny by repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. You know what they were interested in? Power structures and authority. And can I tell you, whenever the church gets to a place where it thinks that political or social agendas, which is what they're saying here they had, are the primary things we need to hear the refocusing message of Jesus when he says it's not for you to know the times and the dates of all those things he's saying that's above your pay grade as a matter of fact he goes on to say that's above my pay grade those are only the things that the father himself is privileged to know but here's what I want you to focus on look at verse 8 that little conjunction but means so much but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And then notice the geographical expansion strategy in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. He says the rippling of the Spirit's work of the gospel proclamation is going to occur. And then the Bible says after this, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking. Can you imagine Jesus just rising up? Imagine somebody was here, and then all of a sudden they're just rising in the sky. I mean, you'd just be mesmerized. We were watching the Disney movie. I believe it's called Rocket Man last night. And You know, you fly around a little bit, and it's pretty cool, and everybody's amazed. And whenever the jet pack goes off and he flies up, you're just standing there like, whoa, that is really cool. Can you imagine no jet pack? Can you imagine no one knowing how to fly? never even thinking about anything but a bird flying. And all of a sudden, Jesus is lift off like a NASA rocket into the sky. And all of a sudden, you're standing there like, oh, man, what's just going on? And, and of course, God is teaching a lesson in that moment. So he sends his angels to press the point and refocus the apostles. He was taken up before their very eyes in a cloud and hid from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going. Of course they were. You'd be too. And then two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This Jesus that has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the very same way that you have seen him go. You see how easily distracted the disciples were? They'd been with Jesus, and yet they were so easily distracted on everything else. And Jesus focuses them and says, no, no, remember the mission that I have assigned to you. And then he goes into heaven, and then he sends two angels back to go, okay, guys, it's time to get refocused upon the mission. And can I tell you, that's what the church has to do in moments of transition, Moments like what you're in as a church minister. You've got to step back and be able to say, hey, what is the primary thing that the church is supposed to be about? And, and the Bible's very clear here. It is that gospel-focused mission 
of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is incredibly clear about this. As a matter of fact, on five occasions in the Bible, we hear what's called the Great Commission. The Matthew 28 version is the one we know the best. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, all of the full measure of that verse is the one we probably look at and remember the most. But not only does Matthew end with that, but Mark ends with the Great Commission. Luke ends with the Great Commission. John ends with the Great Commission. And then there's a fifth restatement, Acts 1-8, of the Great Commission. It's almost like the apostles are saying, yes, we get it. We're going to start our history books saying we're building on the focus of the mission that Jesus has called us to focus upon. And, and listen, in times of transition, it's just the great need of the church. For a young generation, young people, I'm so glad to see you in the room today. I applaud you for being here, of building your life upon the eternal things of God. And, and, and as you think about what the church is supposed to be about, the first and greatest thing that the church is supposed to be about is the mission of Jesus Christ. Fellowship comes second. Community comes second. Giving comes second. Teaching comes second. The biggest thing that we are about is the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's got to be the thing that gets first and foremost in our mind. Now, there are three things that I want us to talk about given the context of this passage of Scripture. I want you to see the apostles were the focus of this refocusing effort of Jesus and the uh, angels as they were working to make sure those apostles were focused. And, and, and I want us to talk about your pastor and, and, and how we need to begin now praying for that pastor that God is going to assign the responsibility here at Palmetto Baptist Church, uh, that work of leading you. I, w- I want us to really talk about that. Then number two, I want us to talk about the church. And, and I want us to answer some key questions for ourselves from Scripture that reminds us who we are supposed to be. And, and, and then finally, we'll conclude by, by looking at the, the process of kind of going from where we are to where we need to be as we refocus ourselves upon what God's plan is for the church. Now, let's start with the pastor. Number one, there are primarily three roles that your pastor is going to, to need to, to play in helping focus the church upon the mission. And, and these are the things that I would say you ought to begin praying for, that you ought to begin interceding on that person's behalf for, that you ought to be praying for yourself as a body of believers to be receptive to the three-dimensional leadership role that the pastor has within the church. Now, there are two places where we could turn in the Bible to find this, and I'll give them to you, and you can maybe study those this week. Uh, There are two really tremendous passages of Scripture. One is in Acts chapter 20. The other is in 1 Peter chapter 5. In Acts chapter 20, it's a really famous retreat setting in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul gathers the Ephesian elders together on the beach and he meets with them. And it's just really one of those mountaintop spiritual experiences, kind of like what we're praying our young people will have this week. Uh, Pastor Eric shared with our staff this week that He's praying for you to have spiritual formation in your heart so that your heart is shaped by the the spiritual work of God and the truth of Scripture as you learn how to use those disciplines to develop uh, yourself spiritually in, in, in accordance with the work of God's Spirit working in you. And so just as there's 
the, the young people going on a retreat this week, the Apostle Paul had a retreat going on with the Ephesian elders, and there were three things that he said to them. He challenged them in three ways. The first was he said, be a wise elder. He talked about the difficulties of leading. He talked about the challenges of leading. He talked about the hardships of leading. And, and I don't know if you know this or not. Did you know that being a pastor is a hard job? This means yes, this means no. Did you know that being a pastor is, is a hard job? That's right. This means yes in, in sign language. And, and so the idea is it's a tough job. Let me read you some statistics that I pulled this week. 75% of pastors according to psychologists, are extremely or highly stressed. 90% work between 55 and 75 hours a week. 90% feel fatigued or worn out every week. 70% are grossly underpaid for what they do. 40% report serious conflict at least once a month. 78% have to resign their church. 63% of those have to do it twice in their ministry. And more than 80% will not be in the ministry 10 years from today. It's a tough job. And so we need to pray for our pastor, but we also need to appreciate what our pastors are being asked to do and what they're challenged to do within Scripture. So Paul gets the Ephesian elders together and he says, be a wise elder. Why? Because you need wisdom in discerning through all of the maze of challenges that you face what is right and what is the will of God. You know, Solomon had it right when he was asked, what one gift could God give to him? He prayed for wisdom. Young people, that's not a bad gift to pray for. Is God make me wise? It was such a gift when it came to his own parenting. He wrote the book of Proverbs, and the first four chapters of Proverbs are solely about the instruction that brings wisdom into a person's life. And listen, pastors need an incredible wisdom, but not only wisdom and their eldership and their teaching and their directional direction giving for people and dealing with different varieties and expressions and experiences that people have had but also the bible talks about them being a shepherd paul would say to the uh, ephesian elders there, there's going to be an attack upon the church and you're going to have to shepherd the work the church you're going to have to care for the the church you're going to have to protect the church and and listen make no mistake in our day and time there's a a real attention to the shepherding role that the pastor plays but be careful not to get that out of balance in your mind because we do call the pastor a pastor i.e. a shepherd and so by using that name, we kind of default to that role. But that's not the only role that the pastor plays. As a matter of fact, there's a third role, and, and it's added by the Apostle Paul when he says, be a good overseer. As a matter of fact, when you get to the First Peter 5 passage in verses 1 through 3, verse 1, he says, be a good elder. Verse 2, be a good shepherd. At the end of verse 2, be a good overseer. He says to us, one day you're going to give an account of that oversight. And, and so a pastor has a sense of responsibility for this skilled elder or skilled overseer, wise elder, and this transformational shepherd work. And as a church, here's what I would say to you, it's really important that we're ready to receive that. That we're ready to receive the wisdom from a pastor when they come. They're teaching their life, the priorities they establish, when they give the church a caution, when they share a warning with you. 
You know, most people aren't really anticipating and receptive to those kinds of words of instruction in our day and time. Instead, they're a little defensive and aggressive. Can I tell you, if your first initiative is offensive and aggressive, as opposed to receiving wisdom and instruction, there's probably some pretty significant spiritual maturity that needs to occur in your life. Because as a matter of fact, Paul would say that it's the wise person that receives instruction. It's the loving person that shares what they have learned. Solomon would say the same thing in Proverbs chapter 2 and 3 to his sons. The wise person will receive that. And listen, the wise church will receive a pastor's instruction and teaching. They'll also receive a pastor's shepherding and not just for his empathy and compassion and concern on behalf of God and the people. But more importantly, do you know how the Bible positions that? It's not just for empathy and concern, it's for your soul care and transformation. The Bible doesn't just think, uh, just doesn't speak about uh, receiving care and concern from the church in terms of consolation. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks to us about receiving consolation, care, and support from the church, which we can and should receive from the church, which the church should be very good at giving within the church, but it should be for our soul's concern. And the Bible says this is the transformational work because God usually does his greatest works to change, mature, and develop us through difficulty. It's in those moments that we need not just shepherding, but shepherding that directs us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's the oversight work. Be a good overseer. And there's a biblical pattern for this. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there are three overseers, Joseph, Josiah, and Nehemiah. Joseph cast vision. Josiah builds a strategy for bringing renewal. And Nehemiah is concerned about the culture of what is within the people of God, how they're behaving collectively as a group of people in order for all three of those environments to be revitalized, for there to be new life, for there to be fresh vision, for there to be an excitement of what's next, for there to be a faithful obedience to the Lord. Joseph did it for Israel. Josiah did it in the great, dark, depressed days of Israel. And Nehemiah did it after the Babylonian captivity. Every one of them were renewers. And the Bible says that a new pastor comes and brings that renewing work of God. Some of you were worried I was going to fall off the stage there when I looked down, weren't you? I'll, I'll try to stay up here, all right? Um, so it's that renewing work of God that we want our pastor to be able to lead us in. And here's what we need to begin doing now. We need to pray. So I asked Kathy for the prayer list this week for everyone just so I could begin praying and interceding for everyone. And one of the things that I wrote on my list in the corner of it was, and God, you know who the new pastor shepherd is supposed to be. And, and listen, we need to be on our knees. We need to be on our faces pleading with God to give us His anointed man to lead us into His desired future. Because you know what? God is not finished working in His church. Do you believe that? Let me say it again. God is not finished working in his church. 
God is alive and well, powerful and eternal, good and loving. And he is at work in his church. His kingdom will never end. That's what he's talking about here. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is what we can be confident is the best thing, the biggest thing, the greatest thing, the boldest thing. And therefore, we can always re-engage with the mission of God as he is doing his work. So first and foremost, we have to understand the roles that our pastor is going to play and be praying for them. The second thing that I want you to see on the screen is that there are six directional questions that every church must be able to answer. Now, the problem is, is most churches don't even know what the questions are. Now, they're talking about them all the time. They talk about them in the parking lot or in the lobby or when they run into each other at Walmart or at the ball fields or uh, someplace in the community. They, they, they're always talking about it. And, and they're always talking about the ministry of the church. But, but there's really not a, a framework for really talking about the things that we need to have our attention brought to. And so, so what I did is I just formulated the six questions. And, and here's the interesting things. It's the six questions God answers. And it's the six questions God has designed people to desire to know the answers of. And, and it's the six questions and the six answers that every church has to be able to give. Now let me give them to you. I'll give them to you quick, then I'll come back and give them to you slow. It, it's what do we do? Why do we do it? How do we do it? Where are we going? Where do we start? And how do we know if we're getting there? What do we do? Why? How? Where are we going? Where do we start? How do we know if we're making a difference? And see, this is what people are always talking about, but, the, but they never really have a framework for grasping a hold of it or having the substantial conversation. They're always talking about it because we need the focus brought to the attention like Jesus did with his apostles and like the angels did with, I mean, they had to be refocused twice. If Jesus were telling me, hey, I'm about to fly into the sky, listen, these words are really important, do these things. I mean, they're standing there and all of a sudden, as if to make the point, God sends the two angels and says, hey, why are you still standing there? That we have responsibilities. We've got things that are busy to be about. And we're, we're accountable to the Lord for these things. And we've got to be about this work because the world is desperate. And I would say to you today, the world is desperate. And right now, the world is struggling with its voice and with its vision. And we've got to make sure that the voice and the vision are clear in a time when it's needed the most. What do we do? You know, Jesus made that clear, the Great Commission. We make disciples. Why do we do what we do? Well, the Bible says that God told us why he did all that he did, that he wanted a family for himself. And, and then he expressed what that family would look like. The Old Testament family was built around the Ten Commandments. The, the New Testament family was built around Acts 2, 42 through 47, the values of the church, because he wants these values to be lived out within the church ministry. And it was worship and evangelism and discipleship and fellowship and ministry and generosity and prayer. He said, because this is the community that I want my family to be about. That's why. 
And, and then the question becomes, how? And there's a lot of conflict over how because, well, this generation did it that way. Well, on the mission field, they did it this way. Well, our European ancestors did it this way, or our African ancestors did it that way, or our South American friends do it this way, or my generation did it this way, that generation did it the other way, and all of a sudden, the how becomes the, the point of conflict. But can I tell you, Jesus was really clear on the how. As a matter of fact, he not only spoke repeatedly the how, he showed in action how. There's a fourfold pattern that Jesus used. You can put it into just simple little word phrases. He would constantly say to people, come and see. And, and his disciples would constantly say to people, come and see. The woman at the well said, come and see the man that has told me everything I've ever done. Peter would say to his, or Andrew would say to his brother Peter, hey, come and see the one who's the Messiah. Come and see, come and see, come and see. And, and then Jesus, when they would come and see him and they would hear him and watch his miracles and see all the things that he did and who he was and what he was like and the love that he demonstrated, and, and then Jesus would look at them and say, follow me. And then as they began to follow me, there would be a special moment in their life where they would really come to understand what following Jesus meant. And it was <clears throat> what the Bible refers to as that abide in me moment, that spiritual fruit moment. For Peter, it was walking on the water. Hey, Peter, get out of the boat and come to me. For all the apostles, they had that kind of abide in me moment in the upper room. And then, of course, Jesus was constantly training them for the final launching out that we just read in Acts chapter 1 when he would say, go and tell. He would send the 70, go and tell. He'd send the 500, go and tell. And then he sent them all, go and tell. And guess what happens when you go and tell? You invite people to do what? To come back and to come and see. Come and see. Follow me. Abide in me. Go and tell. Starts all over. Come and see. Follow me, abide in me, go and tell. And it's the reproduction process of disciple making. And young people, this week, it's going to be my prayer every day this week that you're just having Christ formed in you, Christ formed in you, Christ formed in you, studying the Bible, worship, fellowship, all the things that you do, just Christ formed in you. Why? Because that is such a significant part in that process of disciple-making activity. And listen, when the church knows what it's doing, Great Commission, why it's doing, the values that God has shared with us as Christian people, the disciple-making strategy, the how we do it, and here will be the last one of the six that I unpacked for you from a spiritual perspective, where we are going you know, the Bible goes to great pains to tell us where we're going. If the Great Commission is the mission, the vision of where we are going is found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. And it tells us, you can't read the words without it bringing tears to your eyes if you're a true follower of Jesus. Because you look at those words and you realize that's your future experience. And you realize the commitment you made back then when you trusted Christ for the first time and that you're living out today with all of its ups and downs. You are living for a moment where you are gathered around the throne with people from every tribe and language and nation, from every generation. 
from all over the world, everyone that has had the banner over them called God's love through the gospel displayed in their life and His mercy hitting their heart where they came to faith and repentance and began to follow Jesus. There is this heavenly calling in a great throne where God is seated upon the throne and the crowd is gathered around Him and, and the joy of the Lord is fully present and you are made up of that crowd of witnesses there and it is this eternal heart longing that is more powerful than sin, is more powerful than hate, is more powerful than death, is more powerful than the grave. I mean, it motivates us to live forward with that vision. Why is that so important? Because God knows that people are designed to live for vision. And so when there's vision in front of us, it compels us forward. And so for each one of us, we have to know, hey, here's God's mission and how we as a church are pursuing it. Here's the values that we embody as a congregation that tell us who we are and where we're going. Here's the strategy, how we truly are going to make disciples, not just have worship gatherings, but really become like Jesus. And here's the vision that we're pursuing eternally, and here's our short-term vision for our church ministry. You see, God knows that He designed us to be led that way. And it's important that we go from the Winchester house to Jesus' house. From the everything all-encompassing to, hey, what does Jesus want? And, and it doesn't have to be exactly like the church down the street or like somebody across town. As a matter of fact, when you start copying others, you usually stop obeying specifically. As a matter of fact, when you obey specifically, you see things like the seven different churches in Revelation where each one has its own unique expression of the gospel. And what we would say is that's exactly what God wants to do here. And yet for a people collectively to pursue that is so important. Now, here's the third and final thing that I'll close with today. The third and final thing is that there's a process that the church has to go through. Now, we don't have to get into all six of the steps of the process, but the Bible outlines six steps in the process. The first is a, a process of honest discovery. And we'll be working uh, with your uh, committee to go through that process of saying, okay, what does that process of discovery look like? And, and we'll look at various aspects of the church's ministry where we have to step back and be honest with ourselves about who we are. And, and we have to realize there's no perfect church on earth. Somebody one time said to me that if there's a perfect church that you find, don't join it, you'll mess it up. And that's really the case, isn't it? We, we all are imperfect. I was saying to my kids last night at my daughter's 20th birthday party, I said, look, you, you understand your parents have not been perfect, right? And, you know, it's easy for especially young children to look at their parents if, if they live in a healthy home and go, oh, they're perfect. Uh, no, they're not. We struggle to mess each other up, and we usually do a good job at it because we're such imperfect people. But we're pursuing a perfect Savior and therefore, his values of grace and hope and love and faith are so very, very important. But we've got to step back and take an honest look. Where are we? How are we doing? What's going on? Is it being effective? Are people being made into disciples? Do we have a plan for developing leaders? We've got to be able to step back and look. And then secondly, we've got to use a Revelation 2 and 3 type approach to say, okay, what has God brought together at this place? We've got to look at the leadership of the church like Jesus did with the church in Ephesus or the church in Philadelphia, or the church in Laodicea. And, and then what's the community like and what dynamics are present there? 
And, and then what opportunity does the church have? What has God put in front of the church? And at the intersection of those three things, there is and will be, listen church, this is as prophetic as I can promise you I will ever be because it is the truth of God's word. That is where your collective step of faith and obedience will come in. You see, God not only calls you to take your own personal step of faith and obedience, but God calls the church congregation to take a step of faith and obedience. And that significant step of faith and obedience can be one of the more challenging things that we experience as a people because it can disturb us in our comfort zones. And then we answer the six directional questions. What do we do? Why do we do it? How do we do it? Where are we going? Where do we start? How do we know if we're getting there? We answer those questions. We make sure that disciple-making is the heart of who we are. And we'll be working on that with you in the next few months. But if you're a small group teacher, just know that your staff will be praying for you tomorrow. And we'll be praying for the disciple-making function within the church. Because it lies at the heart of what we have to be about. We have to raise up leaders, and then we have to do what God has called us to do in faith. There are your six steps of what we have to go forward in faith doing. I want to close with just one word from that book that I've told you already that I love. And, you know, some people love the book of Revelation for its prophecy and end times um, agenda and that sort of thing. And, and it's certainly are, uh, filled with information related to what uh, the coming of the Lord will be like and what will happen to us and those kinds of things. But, but more than, than just that in Revelation, as a matter of fact, that's secondary stuff in Revelation. The primary stuff in Revelation is to remind us during our difficulty that God is still on the throne and His mission is still the focus of the church. And I was reading this week in Revelation chapter 1 and I was reminded um, of, of what... Um, was written there by John, said, I turned and saw that a voice was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstand was someone like the Son of Man. It's Jesus. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, his head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was radiant like the sun. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet. It's a picture of worship. It's a heavenly picture of the eternal pre-incarnate, now resurrected Jesus. The seven golden lampstands carry over in the story of chapter 2. As a matter of fact, a lampstand is found in every one of these seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. And the point I'm trying to make is this, is that the eternal glorified Jesus that we one day will stand in the presence of and worship wants to have his lampstand burning bright in every one of his churches. The problem is, in five of the churches of Revelation, the lamp wasn't burning bright. And the encouragement for each of us is this. We want to make sure that in Jesus' church, 
His light's burning bright. That His glory is on display. And that our collective lights, to borrow Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, our collective lights, not hidden under a bushel, but shining together, looks like a big city all aglow because there's so many people letting the glory of God shine through their lives that the glory of God shines here as well. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? As you do, I wonder, as we come to our final song and our closing of our service, if there are not some that need to do exactly what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, remember, remember these things. Remember the focus of the church. Remember the glory of Jesus in the church. Remember the importance of the mission of the church. And then if there's anything to repent of, the Bible says that's one of the best ways to bring about the fresh winds of the Spirit of God blowing through a congregation is when there is repentance. In my own life, the points of greatest spiritual change were when I said, God, I'm sorry. God, you're right and I'm wrong. God, forgive me. And maybe some this morning would just stop right where you are and when we stand to sing, maybe remember and if need be, repent. And then finally, he says, return. Return back to those things that you know to be right, the best things, the most important things, the biggest things. So I'm going to stop and turn it over to the Lord. We'll stand, we'll sing after I pray. And if you need any help in what the Lord's doing, I'll be here. Pastors will be here somewhere in the back. You can pray with one another as well. Father, use these moments. The mission of the church is too important and the need is too great. Bless our time together now in worship as we stand in your presence, sing of your glory, and consider our own spiritual condition today, Father. Lead us as your spirit would. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.